you will, turn back in your Bibles. Romans chapter 1 is where we are. May God grant you the ability for a few minutes to fixate your eyes, mind on what I have already shared. It's probably one of the most controversial passages in all of Scripture for all kinds of reasons. And today I hope that we can drill down a bit deeper into the essence of what the apostle is stating. The Pilgrim's Progress through Romans is what we are seeking to try to achieve this year for those of us who are serious about grasping the anthology of the gospel in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Romans. I'm not going to go back over the historical validity of the Roman uh, church, but the parallels between that era and now ought to be known by all informed Christians. The parallels are not an accident. Just learn about the Roman Empire, particularly in the first century up until its demise in the fourth century, and you'll get an idea of the backdrop to the struggle of the Christian church. The title is The Pilgrim's Progress Through Romans. The subtitle, The Whole World is Guilty Before God. The whole world is guilty before God. Now, that is a summation of things that I want us to be thinking about. And the apostle sets this forth in his conclusio in chapter 3 of Romans at verse 19 when he says, Now we know, he's speaking to informed people, this requires being informed. Now we know, it's the first person plural. That means you might know what he knows. And if you do, here's what you know. Now we know that whatsoever things the law, the word of God says, it says to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. This is how God stops all arguments. This is how he stops all protests. This is how God opposes all gainsayers by his word. It's God's word against their word. And when God's word actually makes its way into the argument, the mouth is stopped. And the whole world becomes guilty before God. Now, that's Paul's assessment. It comes out of Torah. It's very clear that there's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. So Paul's assessment is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That was his indictment in Romans chapter 3 as well. He made it clear that God has concluded after God has tallied up all of the human beings on the planet from Adam to the last human being, all are under sin. That means we are all transgressors against God's law and God has a controversy with us. That is the three chapter assessment that the apostle Paul under inspiration of the spirit has made. And remember what we are doing. We are listening to one who is arguing as a lawyer for God on the behalf of God's righteousness. The book of Romans is about the righteousness of God. I need you to capture that. The gospel is about the righteousness of God. The revelation of God to humanity is about God's righteous character, his righteous assessments, and his righteous acts. Humanity has a problem, and that is there is a God, and that God happens to be righteous. He's righteous in his nature and character. He's righteous in his assessment about us. He is not unrighteous to say all have sinned. He's proven that we have. 
and he will continue to prove that we have all sinned and come short of his glory. And God is righteous in his judgment against us as human beings. Now, to a very curious extent, the Apostle Paul is arguing from Romans 1, 16, if you guys recall, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. That is part of his argument. The solution to God's indictment upon humanity is a solution that God solved for himself in the person of Jesus. And yet, wouldn't you know it? Humanity doesn't even want that solution. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. You must know that, child of God. You can't rightly represent God or speak for him or stand for him or think with him if you don't have a comprehensive understanding of the gospel. Please pull a verse up. Romans 1, 16. I want you to see it with your eye because this is a pivotal verse for our New Year's theme. You should know it and you should drill down into it and think it through. I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel does not bring shame. The gospel does not fail. The gospel does not lie. The gospel does not change. The gospel doesn't tell you it will do something and it doesn't. I'm not ashamed. The gospel doesn't bring me to embarrassment. The gospel doesn't say, pastor, claim this. And then when I claim it, the gospel doesn't come through. The gospel always comes through. And so my point here for you to get is that the believer in a world in which we live, like the Roman Empire, has to deal with all kinds of carping arguments against God and against God's solution to our sin problems. You and I are still dealing with that today. The vast majority of the world does not want Christ. And in that sense, it doesn't want God's righteousness because there's only one righteousness that can solve your problem, and that's God's righteousness. Now, what Paul is saying is he hasn't found the righteousness of God, which is revealed in Christ, to have let him down. He hasn't done that, and so I am asserting that I want you to anchor down with me in your thoughts. I want you to think about this. The whole controversy of humanity, man against God, the satanic system against the godly system, is a battle between dark forces and light forces around this claim that God alone can provide a righteousness that can fix humanity's problems. This is fundamentally what's going on here. Now, I want to actually begin to build some pillars around that idea the way Paul has laid it out in Romans chapter 1. And I need you to think with me today, okay? I need you to do more than feel. I need you to think. So, you know, feel with me because I'm getting ready to kind of go into some stuff that can be difficult to grasp if you're not thinking. We left off last time with Paul's argument that they know that God is righteous. Paul said this over in chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. Let's look at it again. This is to help you as an apologist understand. This, this one is going to be a good axiom. Please watch this. Watch this. When God says they know, that means what? What? Now, even if they tell you they don't know, they know. All right, so this is going to help you because you and I are so prone to liars lying to us that when they tell us they don't know, we're inclined to believe them. But that's because we're liars too. 
So I want you to think this through with me. When he says in Romans chapter one, verse 18, these words, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who are constantly suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has what? Shown it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What I want you to grasp here is that Paul has understood that God has so made it known that every human being knows intuitively and deeply that they're dealing with something transcendent, something outside of themselves, something bigger than themselves with whom they are culpable and accountable to. Every human being knows this in the deeper crevices of their being. We argued that, did we not? We argued for the cosmos speaking to the reality of the greatness and goodness of God, did we not? We argued for the conscious, didn't we? In Romans chapter two, God has written his law on the heart and the conscience of mankind. We argue that the conscience is that knowing, conscience, to know with. That's what that term means. It means you know because God has given you the capacity to know that there's something greater than you, sir, ma'am. Okay, by which you have to give an answer. So we've learned that God's cosmos, his creation, will testify to God. Your own conscience will testify to God at the level of moral and ethical propriety. I'm getting ready to drill down into that. But also Christ has come as the final and vivid revelation that God is righteous. So I'll help some of you who don't know it. But the very fact that the living God put his son on the cross means God is holy. That God is just and God is righteous. And what God did was display the perfections of his righteousness in the death of Christ on the cross to let the world know that wherever sin is, he must punish it. And so now everybody has to deal with the judge who has already paid the price. So if you reject that price, you are without excuse. That's the essence of the gospel. That's why I told you the gospel is not an invitation. Sorry, we love to kind of wrap things up in party bowls and packages. The gospel is a celebratory summons. It's a celebratory summons. God is summoning you to submit to his claims of righteousness. You guys know this. And this is what will get Christians in trouble. When you talk about God the way he really is, it'll get you in trouble because the mind knows that if you if you entertain the proposition that there's one God, one true and living God, and that there's only one way to be right with God, that the mind now is narrowed down to a set of ideas of which if we reject them, we are now in opposition to that set of propositions. Does that make sense? This is why people don't like it, because all of us want to fancy the idea that we can get to heaven our own way. Right. So we want to make sure that we understand that the battle is around the narrow way versus the broad way. Point number one, in our outline, because I want to drill down into some ideas. I want you to hear them going forward. Let's see if we can make some application to where we are today. They failed to accurately acknowledge God. This is God's indictment. God gave them the information and they have failed to accurately acknowledge God. Look at verse 21, because that when they what? They knew God. They glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful. See it? So they failed to accurately acknowledge God in two major categories. Sub point A, a committed rejection of that revelation. 
a committed rejection. And the emphasis I want you to capture here is there was a resolve on the part of fallen men to refuse the evidence that God granted them. And this goes on to this very hour. So point A, a committed rejection of that knowledge. What is that? That the one true God from whom all blessings flow and the scope of his operational rule that Paul calls the Godhead, this vast authority on the part of the triune God and his angels running this universe, stewarding this world and granting blessings, we refuse to acknowledge God as the CEO of this universe. Okay, so it's important for you to know under subpoint A, a committed rejection of that knowledge. I want you to go with me to Psalm 8, verse 1. I want to underscore some of these propositions, both in the old and the new, so that you can realize that Paul, he's, he's part of the writing of the New Testament. So everything he's talking about is coming from Torah, coming from the Tanah, okay? It's coming from the Old Testament. And is this not true? Psalm 8, verse 1, listen to it. Oh, Lord, our Lord, this is, oh, Jehovah, our Adonai, how excellent, how majestic, how effulgent is your name in all the earth. And, and the term name means your reputation, your character, right? Your, your qualifications to be called Jehovah. How excellent and majestic is your name in just some parts of the earth? Right now, this is important because what this asserts is, God is known by his creatures. And when he's rightly known, he's known as an excellent being. He's known as a majestic being who has set your glory above the heavens. And the glory, the intrinsic quality of God's glory exceeds the heavens. This here is a kind of from the lesser to the greater measure of the qualitative aspect of God's glory. If the heavens are glorious then God's glory is greater than the heavens. Now that takes an epiphany for you to capture. That means you got to spend time with God. For you to find God to be more glorious than this vast galaxy, which itself is stupefying. For God to be greater than that is to enter into mysteries inexplicable, as Paul said, full of glory, unspeakable. Does that make sense? The only part of your being that can get a hold of that is your soul and your intuition because your intellect is way too small to grasp the fullness of the glory of the invisible God who made all things for himself. But humanity is committed to destroying it. Now look at Psalm 8, verse 4 through 9. Now notice what God does. This here is what has the angels scratching their head. Psalm 8, 4, and it's important to capture. What is man that you are mindful of him? See it? Right, so now we're, we're going from the infinite being who is not a man himself to the pinnacle of his creation called mankind. Now, this is the theater of the battle that I, I want to help you understand. The theater of the battle with God in terms of humanity is that mankind was set up to be the pinnacle of God's creation. After all, he was made in the Imago Dei. He was given intrinsic qualities that correspond with the nature of God at what we call the communicable level. Mankind is a species that was destined to great glory. We learned that in Psalm 49, 12, did we not? Man being an honor. God honored him, but because he didn't abide in that honor, he has fallen to a beastly status. Y'all caught that? 
I'm coming back there because that's what Paul is about to argue, that we have fallen. And here God has set man up. What? What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you should what? Literally, I want you to capture this. It's broader in the redemptive sense, but practically that you should care for him. Now, who are you that God should come and hang out with you? Who are you that God should allow you to breathe, move and have your being? Who are you that God would wake you up every day and get you on your way and set you down in your job and help you make a paycheck and bless you in all your way? Who are you that God would do that for you? It's not about you. It's about God. God is good enough to hang with men who want to hang with him. That's why I like the way my elder put it. Yeah, I'm with him. And I'm with him because he's with me. If God be for us, who can be against us, right? There, there's a thing to boast in. Be ye proud doers of the Lord, right? Hanging out with God. Why? Because he visits us. Now, that is a theological trend. You must know that. The God who is high and holy and lifted up, I'm about to argue for its qualities. He visits mankind. That's the narrative of scripture. God fellowshipping with us and it has its perfect fulfillment in who? Jesus. This is Paul's argument. It's important for you to get. Look at what he says. For you have made him a little lower than the angels. This is true at the hierarchy of our ontology. We are a little lower than the angels, but you have crowned him with glory and what? So now this is what I want you to capture as we get ready to go into the warfare. In the warfare, the enemy reverses. He inverts everything that God says is true. Did that make some sense? So God says that mankind is crowned with glory and honor. The anti-God says that mankind is no better than the beast of the field. I'm helping you with the antithesis. Because we're getting ready to go into arguments around propaganda. Who's telling the truth and who's lying? Now, God says he crowned us with glory and honor. That means he's designated us for the highest positions in the universe under him. What a profound designation. Look at verse six through eight. Let's keep going. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hand and you have put all things under his feet. With the exception of the last clause, everything that David said there is true. It's not an accident that we rule the world. It's not an accident that we rule the world. I'm talking about the species called the homo sapien. I'm talking about the person who is called a human being, anthropos. It's not an accident that we are at the highest levels of governance in the universe and that everything is a consequence or a coextension of our efforts. God set it up that way. Did that make some sense? It's important to know. Now, again, an inverted argument on the part of the Antichrist system is is in reality, all the animals are wiser than us. They're smarter than us. They're brighter than us. And we are on the lower end of the food chain. We are weak and we are this and we are. Watch out for the abominable doctrine of evolution at that level, because it is a bold faced argument and attack against God's propositional truth claims. Okay, and you have to be careful because to what degree you buy into the lie, you will become it. This is what God is about to argue in point number two. Okay, so it's very important for you to capture what I'm saying. You have made him now dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things where that means he has authority over it. See it. 
This is what God has done for us. And in terms of human experience, after tens of thousands of years on the planet, this is true. What animal do you know that has authority over man? None. Right? None. Because God has saw to it that he has allowed us to operate in the dignity of that authority. That's Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Let him have dominion over everything. Let him subdue it. Let him refill the earth and have absolute authority over everything. Is that what God said? Is that what God is doing? Right. Now we have a usurper to deal with. We have an enemy that is working his way in, wedging his way in to take that authority from us. This is what Paul wants us to get at. And you need to understand it, too, because you are not outside of the culpability of ending up on the other team if you're not clear as to whose team you're on. You're at verse, uh, uh, verse seven. Go back to verse seven. All sheep and oxen, yea, even the beast of the field. Do we not have control over them? The fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passes through the paths of the seas. Verse nine. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Do you see what David just did? He started off with an anthem, closed with an anthem and built his argument in between it and closed out praising Jehovah. And that's because David experienced what it meant to be exalted by God. He's the least of his brethren, rejected by his mama and daddy, but God chose him out. That's how God does with his elect, right? You were chosen not because of who you are, but who he is. You were chosen not because of your dignity, because you were the least. You were chosen because God loves to take the base things to confound the wise, right? And the meager things, those things that are mighty. That was David and that's us in Christ. He did the same thing with David's greater son, Jesus. This is really about Jesus's rule. The Hebrew writer tells us this in Hebrews chapter two, right? We know that not all things are put under us, but all things are put under him. The Bible's clear, right? God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name that at the name of Jesus, everything is bowing. Jesus is the epitome of the man that we are keeping our eye on in terms of our redemption. But I want us to go to the warfare because it's critical to capture it. So under point number one, they fail to acknowledge God. And as a consequence, they are engaging present tense in a constant state of rejecting that knowledge. Sub point B. And therefore they have they have accrued to themselves a corrupt reputation as foolish philosophers. Look at what we read over in verse 21 and then 22 again. But because that when they knew God, they did not glorify him, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imagination. I talked to you about that last week. This is called radical transformation. I'm getting ready to drill down into that. Radical transformation. Something happens that changes your mind from seeing God to hating God. Something happens, something invasive, something intrusive, something of a kind of coup takes place. Something of a spiritual battle takes place when you lose your mind to the level that you now turn and start arguing and fighting with God. Did that make some sense? They became vain in their imagination. Now, this is where the battle is really staged and framed. The theater of battle in a spiritual dimension, as I taught us last night or Friday night, is the heart. All of this is about the heart. Everything about God's dealing with us as creatures starts in the theater of the heart. And what do we mean by the theater of the heart? Please listen to me. We're talking about the mind. We're talking about our understanding. 
We're talking about our perception. We're talking about our passions. We're talking about our affections. We're talking about the inner man. The inner man is where the war is. The outer man is merely the net effects and outcome of that war. Okay, it's important for you and I to know this. They became vain in their imagination and their foolish hearts were what? So the passions and the drives and the volition now is eclipsed in obscurity because they don't have fellowship with the one true and living God. God is light and there is no darkness in God at all. Jesus is the light of the world. If any man walks with him, he never stumbles in darkness. So there is a whole society here that doesn't know God and necessarily is walking in what? Darkness. And the darkness is internal. It's in the heart. This is where our problem is, ladies and gentlemen. Let's let's continue. This is quite fascinating. Notice what it says in verse 22. We're getting ready to get into some insight into the sociopathic ways of human beings. I'm talking about your cousins. Verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they become what? Right. This is quite interesting because what Paul now is giving us an indicator of their behavior. The indicator of the behavior of humanity is, as I stated before, when the devil has control over a society of people, he must engage in a two front war. He must engage in a three card molly. He must engage in a smoke and mirrors kind of presentation because he's a liar. He doesn't abide in the truth. Are you following me? I'm getting ready to build this down. I'm drill down so that you can capture this. The goal of the enemy is to never tell the truth. And the goal of the enemy, when he ascertains to himself emissaries, men and women, tribes and nations, complete systems, the contract that he signs with them is, you must never tell the truth. So that everything you do is really a lie. That means it must be divided into categories by which Reality is obscured and fantasy is made prominent so that what's being projected and what's being seen and what's being manifested is the Hollywood version and the Tinkertown manifestation of a whole litany and industry and enterprise of lies. So so I want you to capture this with me because I want you to get the epiphany. If you don't, then you're stuck in the blue pill. You're still stuck. You can't see. And a lot of people can't see because it's dangerous to see. It's unnerving to see it, particularly if you begin to recognize the scope of it. It becomes dangerous to your own well-being, particularly if you're not connected to the true and the living God. Right. This is why David says, look, though the earth be removed and tossed into the midst of the sea, I have set my heart, my eyes always before the Lord. Therefore, I shall not be moved. You better get a hold of that. That brother says, I have an anchor to my soul so that when things get real crazy, I can close my eyes and still see reality. I am not subject to all of the slides and films and machinations of Hollywood, no, no matter how technologically advanced they are. But be very careful, you're bobbing your head. I'm afraid you might be trapped. They're professing themselves to be wise. They're professing themselves to be wise. 
And here's the thing that you and I are struggling with. I I don't want to be here alone, but it's important for you to get this. You and I buy the nomenclature. You and I buy the encyclopedia. You and I buy the textbook. You and I buy the package. We buy the devices, just like in... um, in economics, when people buy what are called vehicles, vehicles are packages of different stocks and bonds and mutual funds that the person tells you that if you buy these, we put these together, you're going to get a benefit out of this. Am I making something? The enemy sells us a package, a complete vehicle. And that vehicle has all kinds of uh, what we would call normal assumed systems of success. Normal assumed systems of success. We all are absolutely bent on education, are we not? We're all bent on learning. We're all bent on scholasticism. We're all bent on acquiring different skill sets, are we not? And we are all therefore given to the propensity of pursuing education at the level of PhDs and doctorates and and things of that nature, are we not? And while you and I are on that trajectory of being applauded by men for our learning, we don't realize that a significant portion of it is simply a buying into a slavery system that is manipulating us at the intellectual level. Now, what I'm saying is true. I don't care what you say. You're going to have to parse it. Some of you with your accomplishments and your degrees have been able to only overcome the trap of that system by the grace of God. And yet, and still, some of us and more are trapped in it, even though we may be aware of biblical truth, and it has us at such level that we are still practicing fools, even though we're professing to be wise. Now, this is really important because, again, professing themselves to be wise is about a reputation. Okay, and and the world buys into, again, our um, educational system and its paradigms for what constitutes the 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 scholars of the world who can tell us how the world works and how it operates. And it's going to save us through education. You guys have heard it, right? And every time we turn around, we find that the gatekeepers of these systems are fools, now, now, this is because God is into the warfare and he pulls the valence back just enough for you to see how many clowns are running the institutions. I'm not going to be here long, but I want you to get it, because if you're not listening to God, if you're not listening to his word, you won't see it. That these are a bunch of clowns, wizards of Oz, fools, right? Makeshift leaders. They're actually reprobate. This is where Paul is going. And so when the valence is not pulled back, they can put up a very impressive and persuasive front. Can they not? They talk well. They look dignified. They come with all kinds of uh, accolades and all kinds of commendations. And they and they and they set forth historical arguments for why they are so important. Do they not? But um, the vast majority of what they're doing is nothing but a lie. Today, we are working through something that Jeremiah talked about a long time ago in Jeremiah 23. He talked about the false prophets in his days engaging in massive word stealing. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 23, God says, I hate the prophet who goes around stealing my words and then saying, thus saith the Lord. I hate the prophet that goes around stealing his partner's words and making them his own. You see where I'm going? 
You guys understand what I just stated? I just stated that Jeremiah, 600 years before Jesus, 2,000 years before us, 2,600 years ago, was saying the problem in the pseudo-religious land was that everybody was stealing words. Do we know what that's called in the academic world? Plagiarism. Now, why are people engaging in plagiarism? Because they can't think for real for themselves in any lengthy, deep, profound sense of developing arguments on the ground of original thought. And it's much easier to just hang out with chat, chat GTP uh, and, and actually steal your data. Or look over your, bu- uh, your buddy's shoulder and steal his information. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this has been going on for a long time. And again, Jeremiah 23 lays out that argument. God hates that man or that woman or that people that pretends that they have a relationship with God and are communicating from the rich abundance of fellowship with God as if somehow they are a paragon of wisdom. When in fact, all they have ever done is steal the words of other people, reframe them for their own presentation. That is a lie. And this is what's going on in our world right now. I can tell you it is massive, is it not? It is massive. And it happens at the highest levels of technology. I call it being trapped inside a house of mirrors. Mirrors that are designed to distort the image, misdirect your trajectory to magnify as a labyrinth of confusion and chaos in the mind a confusion and chaos in your reasoning, in your speculations, the smoke and mirrors, the diversion tactics in this system of philosophers is in order that people might not see them so easily. Does that make some sense? The only reason you didn't get it because you didn't watch Enter the Dragon. If you would have watched Enter the Dragon, you would have caught it. Did you watch it? Hey, hey, you young people, this goes to show how old we is. We some old folks. But the battle between Bruce Lee and the head of the championship match was about a room full of smoking mirrors, misdirectional mirrors. And it was designed to keep Bruce Lee from being able to capture him. And on a philosophical level, on a theological level, that's how the enemy works. This is a room full of mirrors distracting you because you and I don't have the capacity to track with him efficiently enough to know which lie he's telling and which truth he's using to cover up a lie. Am I making some sense? Now, it's important for you to get that because that's what your text is teaching, and I want to make sure you're seeing it in real time because it's happening every day. Somebody sent me a clip of of my boy um, um, Vivek Ramaswamy, and that boy then stole about 10, 12, 15 pieces from Obama. They put them together and they showed how he basically plagiarized almost everything Obama had said. Now, all that goes to tell you is what I've been telling you before. Both the left and the right are wrong. They use the same playbook. Both the left and the right are wrong. They use the same playbook. Now, what I love about what technology allows us to do when you have the integrity, I hope I get to it, when you have the integrity to be a pursuer of the truth, but to be a pursuer of the truth, you have to be a lover of the truth. And if you're going to be a lover of the truth, you have to be a lover of the truth against yourself. Because like the biggest enemy is you. You and I know the normalcy bias will keep us from looking truth in the face because it will hurt us because we don't want to be wrong. But see, it's safe being wrong in Jesus. It's safe being wrong in Jesus. In fact, 
it's best to be wrong in Jesus. So he can give you a whole nother receipt about what's right. And you don't have to worry about that receipt coming up bad, bogus, or plagiarized. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that does not have the Son of God does not have life. When you have Christ, I promise you, you have the truth. But this world system, including the church, will tell you you don't need Jesus to have the truth. That's because it's captivated too. I'll get there in a moment. So in the point number two where he says they profess themselves to be wise, but they have become fools. I love the way Jeremiah puts it. Look at Jeremiah chapter eight, verse eight and nine. I told you I'm going to give you a few verses to anchor you in Paul's um, pointer passages that generate his ideas around what's going on. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Tell me if this is not very contemporary. How do you say we are what? And the law of the Lord is with us. This is Jeremiah talking. Lo, certainly in vain made he it, watch this, certainly in vain made he it, the pen of the scribe is in what? That's called plagiarism. That's where the scribe is telling lies, reconstructing history, distorting the facts, because he has left off to write down the words of the Lord. Did that come home, ladies and gentlemen? Look at verse nine. It's important. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. Isn't that what Paul just argued? Humanity rejects the word. Now, if we take that proposition and we use it as a meta narrative, if if we take that proposition and we employ it at every level, what we will discover is, Every system that rejects God's word are fools and and they are worthy of critique for plagiarism and falsifying data and for engaging in fantasy and producing lies. Did that make some sense? Right. If we take God's word seriously, guess what you will learn to do? We get ready to deal with this here in a moment when we get to the reprobate mind you will know that you have to test everything that the people who are actually doing the testing do. Yeah, the the gatekeepers will tell you, you don't don't have to check us out. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're here here to check everybody else out. Don't check us out, right? Jesus said, check me out. Jesus says, which one are you going to convince me of sin? Jesus didn't come here to hide behind a doctrine or a system. He says, here I am. Which come, prove me, test me, and see if you can find any wicked way in me. And the Bible is clear. He knew no sin, did no sin. In him was no sin at all. Pilate had to say, I found no fault in that man. So the nature of truth, the nature of truth is that it sets itself out there to be challenged. The nature of lies is to put up a front to keep you from challenging it. This is the world that we live in, ladies and gentlemen. This is the world that we live in. And notice what it says here uh, in Jeremiah chapter, I'm not going to go to chapter 23, but I'll go one more, Proverbs 14, 8, and then we'll go back to our text. Proverbs 14, 8, listen to what the wise man says. This is Proverbs 14, 8. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way. Did y'all get that? You probably didn't. The wisdom of the prudent is to make sure he's on the right path. 
The term prudent there means sensible and discerning. The wisdom of the prudent is to constantly test every step to make sure that we are in the right way. So then a, a legitimate community of, of people who profess the know, to know the true and the living God, we are not fray, afraid of dealing with facts. We're not afraid of challenging systems. We're not afraid of proving God's word. He tells us to do that. We're not afraid of arguments. We're not afraid of debates. We're not afraid of systems. Because if you have the truth, then everything that comes against you will only prove the truth that you have. Am I making some sense? Right. Plato said it right. The life that's not tested is is not a life worth living. Right. And so this is really what gospel people should be about. Right. If you are my disciples, you will continue in my word and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And we don't mind being challenged, even if it knocks us back on our heel to prove that I don't know as much as I thought I knew. Now I got to get to work and figure this thing out because we as Christians will operate out of assumptions, too. I've already told you that because, see, in the religious system, because we've been captivated by religion. When you when you come to Jesus, I'm putting that in quotes, they give you a whole system. And when you come in, all you need to do is learn a few Bible verses and just hold your big old book of systems. And you look like you know something, but you don't even know the origin of the system that you're in. You don't know if it's deviated from truth. You don't know how close it corresponds to the word of the living God. You don't know if you have the right Jesus, the right Holy Spirit or the right gospel. And a lot of times, and you guys will admit this, until you heard the gospel proper, you did not know you didn't know the gospel. Right. And that's because the nature of the gospel is actually proactive. The cause of the gospel is going after sinners. This is what I love about our Pilgrim's Progress. It is a proactive excursion. Right. That's what it does. The gospel mows down everything in the way of a pursuit of reality. Now, it's going to offend a bunch of people. But we're trying to get at the truth because only the truth is going to set you free. See, and religion is once again a system of smoke and mirrors. It knows how to keep you safe, but not saved. It knows how to keep you in darkness on a lot of levels. Are y'all hearing me? It's really important for us to know the danger of mere religious systems in relation to this, because this is where Paul is arguing from the from the prophets as well. Let me go on. There's much more to be said. Point number two. I really need to drill down into this point. Number two, because they have become a bastion of fools, a society of fools, a sorority of fools. They also have veiled the truth of his transcendence. They have veiled the truth of his transcendence. What does that mean? It means that they have actually snatched God down from his throne rhetorically and philosophically so that societally you lose the benefit of a constant consciousness of a transcendent God. This is where we are today. Don't take five seconds to go. I wonder if what he's saying is true. I told you this last week. There's hardly nowhere you can go where God is honored publicly. I told you this. You and I are so maladjusted to the absence of God in any institution today that for all intents and purposes, God has been brought down. 
I'm making some sense. Am I making some sense? It's really true. We're so used to no God in the conversation, no truth in the conversation, no sense of reason or logic, no moral ethical framework. No, we're used to it today, are we not? We're used to it in our schools, used to it on our jobs, used to it in our social media outlets. Nobody's talking about God. Boy, if that is not a conspiracy, I don't know what is. Let me see if I can go to work with this because I want you to get it. They veiled the truth of his transcendence. What is his transcendence? It is largely this. God is high and holy. God is high and holy. God is high and holy. Isaiah 57, 15. The high and the holy God. God is high and holy. God is transcendent. God is beyond all of us. He he dwells in a realm in which no man can see, no man has seen, and no one can come to apart from a mediator. God is high and holy. The biblical God is high and holy. For thus said the what? High and lofty one that inhabits eternity. Is that you? No. no. You and I are low creatures. Low and vile as our elder put it. Because we're on the way to death. God has existed from eternity to eternity. He's transcended. He's high. He's holy. He's pure. He's impeccable. You know what impeccability means? He can't change. God is immutable. He's perfect in his ways. That's what the Bible says. I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Now, stay with me on this proposition. Because if the biblical God is viewed in his depiction of his intrinsic qualities as high and holy, if he is a God who is impeccable and immutable, if he does not change at the level of his divine attributes or his power, then what in the world is going on in Romans 1 where they are changing the glory of God? Did that make some sense? If God can't change... If God is always transcendently out of reach of the creature, if God cannot be likened to, that's what he said in Isaiah, who can liken anything to me? If God is impeccable, if God is pure and perfect and not a spot of sin in him, if God is unchangeable, then what is this business of exchanging the glory of God but another fraudulent scheme? Stay with me, we got to go to work. We got to go to work because the Apostle Paul has stated it, hasn't he? They've changed the glory of God. They've changed it. Look over again at verse 23. And they've changed the glory of the what? Incorruptible God. This is who I'm talking about. The holy, the lofty, the impeccable, the immutable, the transcendent, the unapproachable God. A God who cannot be contaminated in any part of his being by his creatures. A God who can dwell with us, but we can't dwell with him without him fixing our situation. A God who must change us, but he will never change. Am I making some sense? So the Bible is laying out an argument for, the, for God to be outside of the scope and reach of the creature, except in his mind and understanding. This makes sense to me. This makes all the sense to me because now we got to deal with the inversion. We got to deal with a humanity who will tell us we, we created God. That's right. We created God. We can put God on the throne and we can take God down off of his throne. You do know that, right? 
That's what's going on here in verse 24, 23. And they change. You see that little word in the Greek change, in the Hebrew, in the English change? It's really exchanged. Okay? Metamaxalon. It means to actually take this God away. It's called giving him up and then going and getting other gods. Did that make some sense? Now, what Paul is about to talk about are three exchanges. The first one is man exchanging the true and the living God for a false God that corresponds with, again, as we have talked about, the devolutionary process of the creature starting with corruptible man. Look at your Bible. I want you to see it for yourself because I'm getting ready to argue that you and I are living in a matrix that is explicitly laying out this argument. Here's what it says. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image. Image and glory are synonyms here. Into an image made like to what? Corruptible man. So now, rather than giving adoration and glory to the invisible, transcendent, holy, universal God, the one true and living God, as all creatures are made by him, they are now worshiping and venerating mankind. And here's what Paul says about mankind. Mankind is the exact opposite of God. God's uncorruptible. Man is full of corruption. And so man is worshiping himself and therefore worshiping his corruptions. That's the world I live in. Notice it. It's extremely important. And and the, the reason why I use the term they veiled the truth They veiled the truth is because that's all they could do is veil it. They can't control it. They can't dominate it. They can't get a hold of it. And the veiling of the truth, for those of you who are still keeping up with me, is the ability of the enemy to deceive you into thinking that what he is saying is true and what God has said is wrong. That all started in Genesis chapter 3. Y'all keeping up with me? And it has been perpetuating itself throughout history up to the present time. Every day of your life, you have the, you have the battle of asking the question, is the truth veiled in front of my eyes on any particular topic, on any particular topic? Because remember, the enemy's whole goal is to simply veil truth. Because if he can veil truth, then he keeps you from having access to it at the intellectual, at the reasoning level. Right at the intuition level. His goal is to keep you from seeing the truth so he can distract you by a lie until he can dislodge you from the truth so that he can transform you into a lie. Did that make some sense? So listen carefully to what the text says and then we'll unpack these uh, two points and then we'll move on. These few points. Notice what he says. To make uh, an image like unto corruptible man and to birds and the four-footed beast, and what? So you guys do understand pantheism. Do you understand pantheism? Do you understand animism? Pantheism and animism, you should know that. You're church folk. See what I mean? The world has distracted you from fundamentals of basic theology. Pantheism is the idea that God is in everything. Animism is that everything is God. God's in everything. And everything is God. This is the movie Avatar. It's everywhere today. Y'all ought to know it. Right? Deity and everything. Deity in the plants. These ain't even real. And it's deity in it. <laughs> Did y'all get what I just said? So, of course, of course, it's emerging out of the manufacturing plant of the Middle East with the Hindu gods. And it has dominated our society as well because it's easier to believe in the broad road than the narrow road. Yeah, come on. Plus... 
It feels pretty good for you to call yourself God. Now, I know, I know, I know you don't say it out loud. But many of you who are way too close to the entertainment industry have actually lived proxily through all of your false avatar gods who call themselves gods. And you have heard for decades now that you and I are little gods, have we not? I'm not going to go into it deeply enough. I'm just affirming you that you and I get comfortable with people calling us gods. Are we not the sons of God? Are we not therefore gods? Anytime a knucklehead human being makes $5, he want to turn himself into a god. Isn't that true? He make $100, he make a million dollars. Now he's jaw. Isn't that, fun? Isn't that something? Now he's jaw. No, you're not. You're a peon. You're peon. Get, take your mama name back because you're a peon. But, but see, this is all the smoke and mirrors, and these are the lies that you and I are being told, and these things will begin to entrench themselves into philosophies of all kinds of correlative pan-humanistic ideologies, such as ethnocentrism. Just, I need to keep going, but see, every ethnic group in the house has a category within its own people group that makes them think they're better than somebody else. That's only one stage from the foolishness of deification. Did I make some sense right there? Right. There's only one step away from deification. When you think you are better than someone else intrinsically at the ethnic level, you have now operated out of the devil's lie. Okay, God made... Of all men, by one man, the whole of the nations of the earth, and we're all equal. All equal. No one group is better than another group. And if we really believed in the equality of the ethnic groups, we wouldn't be putting up with all this crap by which other people are destroyed and maligned and enslaved and tortured. If we didn't have an intrinsic capacity for a demonic assertion that we are superior than other people. Is this true? Is it, and some of us that have been on the lower echelon of these deviant systems of evolutionary theory with their, with their eugenics framework by which they have destroyed many of us. Here we are free now and we are indifferent to the slavery and destruction of other people. And we call ourselves children of God. We're a bunch of baboons. You didn't got free and now you think you're better than other people and they got to get free on their own. No, they're, they're going to get free because some of us who are free are willing to lay down our life for their freedom. Otherwise, you don't know the gospel at all. All of us were slaves. And the only free man in the universe came down and assumed our slavery to deliver us from our plight and to restore us back to the dignity of the sons of God. This is so extremely, they veil the truth of the high and holy God, his immutable and impeccable attributes, just so splendid, so splendid are the qualities of God. So point C, by the delusion of holding God hostage. You guys see that? Now, when I use that phrasing, I'm not saying it for a fact. <clears throat> I'm saying that they can't get away from truth. So what they have to do is take God hostage. They got to hide him in a room somewhere. 
And one of the ways they do it is by getting rid of any literature that rightly represents God. Distorting all data, shutting down all, all representatives and ambassadors of God. Did that make some sense? Got to shut them down. We can't let truth prevail. The delusion of holding God hostage. Look at verse 25. Look at verse 25. They changed the truth of God into a what? There it is. And worship and serve the creature more than the creator who is blessed over all forever. They change the truth. They change the truth. This is how they hold it hostage. They changed the truth of God. They changed it. They exchanged it. A compelling, a compelling replacement process has taken place. Listen to what David said in Psalm 106, verse 20. Psalm 106, 20. I'm just going to give you a little bit more of the Old Testament. Then we're going to drill down into the more immediate consequences of this war of exchanges. And then I'll close for today. Listen, thus they did what? Change their glory. Now I want you to stop right there. Now, this is a psalmist bringing commentary on Israel's coming out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness for two months and then they started complaining about God not loving them and they took gold and turned it into what? A golden calf. Do y'all see that? All right, so I'm gonna give you a little insight into the construction of this verse so you can see the honor that they lost when they changed God's glory. When they changed God's glory, they changed their own glory. Look at the verse. Can y'all see it? They changed their glory. So what that means is whatever is your God is your glory. Now I'm getting ready to talk about reprobation because how reprobate must you be to change the glory of the incorruptible God into a beast and then say, these be our gods, deliver us which is happening in every institution in the world. Every enterprise in the world is worshiping at the altar of demonic delusion right now, just like that. Whether you believe it or not, it is so. They change their glory into the similitude of an ox that eats grass. Again, that's Psalm 49, 12. Man is like the beast that what? Perishes. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, I want to see if we can walk through this a bit. They forgot their Savior, Sit, which had done great things in Egypt. Verse 22, see if we can keep walking. Wondrous works in the land of Ham, that's Africa, and terrible things by the Red Sea. One more verse. Therefore, he said that he would what? He would do what? That's Romans 1. You're in Romans 1, where because they exchanged the glory of God, God gave them over to destruction. Does that make sense? Of course it does. All God is doing is responding to them. The Bible's clear. If you're forward with God, he'll be forward with you. You're going to argue with God, he'll argue back. I guarantee you, you won't win. If you want to do evil, God will give you over to evil. If you want to try to turn God into a liar, he'll turn you into a liar. And that's what he's saying. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses chosen to stand in the gap for them to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. Moses died and they were destroyed, weren't they? Destruction happens to the sons of men. And whether you know it or not, Romans chapter one, going back there, Romans chapter one is drawing from the uh, Exodus account. Many of the arguments here for what is about to take place now 
looking at now God's response. I'm going to start over in verse 26 and work my way through. For this reason, for this cause, on this grounds, God gave them up. Do you see that? All right. So I want you to visualize uh, the idea of God retaining a level of relationship with them on a reciprocity level by which he tells them, if you obey me, I'll bless you. Over time, their persistent rebellion against him left God with the contractual agreement that now he's going to give them over to their own deserts. When the language is used here for this cause, God gave them up. They gave God up. So God's giving them up. This here is simply the law of reciprocity. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. No one's going to hell that doesn't want to go to hell. I promise you there won't be one person in hell that doesn't want to be there. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Hell is a dessert. It is a reward for people who said to God, go to hell. It's important for you to know that. That's what Paul is teaching in Romans 3. When we get there, every mouth will be stopped. On the day of judgment, like we argue with each other, carping arguments, eloquent arguments. We'll listen to our atheistic brother, our agnostic brothers. I love them. I love talking to them. I know they're BSing themselves. I know that because we all love to BS ourselves, right? And I know that we're dealing with all kinds of bologna sandwich, by the way, just in case y'all falling over your seat. I know that we're all struggling with all kind of internal conflicts, internal, you know, antinomies, internal issues. I get that. I totally get that. Where's God at? I don't see God. He hasn't proven. I, I, get, I get all that. I totally get it. I'm very sympathetic to it these days. You ought to be too, because part of the obscurity that happens with a lot of our atheistic and agnostic brothers is the foolishness of Christians who don't represent the glory of God as they ought to. Particularly when our atheistic brothers and our agnostic brothers grow up in a quasi-Christian house that's engaging in the levels of idolatry we're talking about. And somehow the parents want them to believe in the God of the Bible when they can't see the God of the Bible in them. I totally understand my atheist brothers and my agnostic brothers. This is totally get that. My job is to patiently persuade them not to look to their mama or their daddy or their sister or their brother or their government. Look to God alone. Ask one question. Ask one question. Lord, show me your glory. And the Bible tells me if we ask, we shall receive. And God will give it to you without argument and without upbraiding. He'll reveal his glory to you because that's his nature. Now, if you don't ask, you won't receive. And then we can all just wait to judgment day to see who was lying, God or you. Now, God says, ask. Point number two, as we're dealing with the delusion of holding hostages, this idea that's being laid out here in verse 26, for God, for this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. Now, what I don't want to do is be long on something that is so explicitly clear here in terms of the human behavior. I do want to actually deal with the scale of it, and I want to deal with the systems of this human behavior that are in these verses. Not that I have ever avoided these. Y'all don't know me if you think I avoid texts like these. I've dealt with these for years. I remember back in the 80s when the homosexual movement began to uh, uh, emerge on the scene coming from behind the valence. 
See if I can talk this through to help you understand. When, we're ta- when I talk about the veiling of the truth, I'm talking about the systems of this world learning how to sow, show, uh, sow set up storefronts, set up, set up major plackets of, of uh, constructs and appearances of normality of a kind of heterosexual normative dominant projection, if that makes any sense, that our societies have operated now for almost 1,500 years under the pretense of a heteronormative sort of ideological construct in the front end. I know you don't get it because you still haven't figured out that they will use the appearance of heterosexual relationships to cover up what they're doing behind the valence. I know you don't get it because you still haven't understood the scheme yet. But at the highest levels of government, at the highest levels of institution, they know that on the ground, mankind has a fundamental knowledge of the biblical concept of the order of humanity. They know at the fundamental level that we are given to organic reality, organic truth, organic development, organic life. And in order for them to bring us into the altered world, the change, the lie, they have to do it subtly and they have to do it wisely. Am I making some sense? I'm trying to get you to understand what's going on today in terms of the progression and the aggression of them breaking through the valence and wanting to become more explicit with the dark world of a perverted society that's been going on since the fall of mankind. This is where you and I are today. This is where you and I are today. For this cause, God gave them up. Literally, the Greek grammar, paradosis from the Greek root word para, uh, paradidomai, and it means that God gave them over to another authority. He gave them over to another authority. I told you this last week, but I know it's time for me to press down into it. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verse 25. Matthew 5, 25 gives us this same construction. And I just want you to see that when God gives us up, It doesn't mean we're living in a vacuum. It means we're under the governance of a dark authority. Listen to it. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver you to the what? And the judge deliver you to the what? And you be cast into prison. See the phrase deliver? That's our word. So you notice how you went from a controversy with your adversary to your adversary having power to deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer and to deliver you into prison. Did y'all get that? That's what God does because he is the one in controversy with us. When we argue and don't agree while we are in the way and the way is the truth of the gospel. When we reject the gospel and do not agree with God, God gives us over. And he gives us over to the dark powers of this world system. And the dark powers of this world system is the Antichrist system. If you put the ledger up on the right, on the one side of it is God. On the other side is the anti-God. On one side is God and his son called the son of God. On the other side is the false God and the son of perdition. On the one side is God, his son, the image of the invisible God, and the sons of God who live according to the Imago Dei. 
On the other side is the false god, satanic system, the son of perdition, and all his children are children of the devil operating out of the inversion system. The inversion system of denying the glory of God, denying the creative order, denying the binary correlation between men and women, denying the organic process of life and fruitfulness. And thus we live in this broken world where at a predatory level, a predatory level, mankind has turned in on himself. Did y'all hear what I just stated? At a predatory level. So the reason I'm emphasizing this is because, again, the smoke and uh, mirrors and the sprinkle dust you get from the uh, hypocrites in the tinker world of Hollywood is they will tell you that the new normal is filled with moral virtue and integrity. And that somehow you and I are to embrace the new normal as if we got it wrong. Are y'all keeping up with me? I'm going to tell you the truth. If you don't come back, the new normal is worse than it appears. It's just that some of us have been trapped between the organic order and the inorganic or what we call the synthetic order being captivated by the beast. And we are part of the reprobation that's taking place. And we don't know where we are. All right, let me see if I can uh, talk this through a bit. Notice what it says over in verse uh, 28 and 29. And I'm sorry, I need to do verse 27 and work our way through it. You guys saw verse, no, verse 26. For this cause God gave them up to vile affections. You see that term vile affections? It means uncontrolled lusts. It means passions that are not regulated by moral and ethical boundaries. Now, if we were to stay there and see my time is running out, if we were to stay there, what we're dealing with is the profound changes and captivation of people at the emotional and psychological level. So that in our psyche and in our emotional makeup, our drives, our passions, our lusts are perverted. They don't have the uh, trajectory of a normal process of being aimed at and towards a binary, what we would call complementarian relationship. When we are perverted in our emotional and our psychological makeup, we are operating by the spirit of error. First John chapter four, only two spirits in the world, spirit of truth, spirit of error. The spirit of truth keeps you on the straight, no pun intended. The spirit of error diverts you. It's called deviation. And when you are deviated, At the emotional and psychological level, you have a propensity towards perversity. That's what's going on here. And it's strong because it is a seed in all of our natures. So some of you pretending Christian, now I don't ever have a homosexual thought. Yeah, you do. (laughs) Deep down in. Now I I I I don't have fornicating thoughts. All right. Pray for that child, whoever that is. They deceiving themselves. Yes, you do. You swing both ways in your mind too because you're a sinner. All have sinned. We all live in that same world. And when God rescued us, he rescued us and left our memory there. You still remember those crazy days. 
And some of y'all swing in there right now as the preacher's preaching. Pastor, you're right. I'm swinging. You're you swinging right now. I get it. You're swinging, but you got to land on solid ground. I get it. You're swinging, but you got to land on solid ground. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know. You need to know how vicious that system is, how predatorial that system is, how controlling that system is, how demonic that system. I'm going to just lay it out there, let you get it. Listen, it is controlling. It is deviant. It is demonic. It is depressing. It is oppressing. Its design is to strip every essence of life out of you and to keep you from Christ. Did you, did you get what I just stated? Right. And this is why in God's mercy, in the battle of light and darkness, that is to say in the battle of this metaverse of global consciousness and our awareness of all of the events that are going on on this planet like never before, we are at a crisis point. I can tell you that now. And the crisis point is a crisis of revelation. It's a crisis of illumination. It's a crisis of information. This is what Daniel said. Knowledge shall increase. It's a crisis of the data being out there. And every day, hearts and minds are being exposed as to whether or not we are leaning into truth or we are leaning into error. Am I making some sense? Right. This is really important for you to for you to capture, because this is all about the vast enterprise of transformation of society at the level of reprobation. Now, this is the term that we need to look at so I can close. We're over at verse 28, even as no, we need to finish verse 27. And likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one towards another, women with women, men with men. That's where we are today, are we not? Working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error. See, there it is. Not their truth, their error, which is appropriate. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, here is why that vacuum is filled with that evil bent, because we reject the knowledge of God that can deliver us from that kind of propensity and bent. And this is why in our governments and in our institutions and in our major enterprising systems in the world, they will not have the word of God as a plumb line in their companies. The word of God is a threat to these human systems at the moral, at the ethical level, at the spiritual level, and therefore at the sociological level. If the light of truth is in every business meeting, then we got to change our business practices. If it's in the midst of our school systems, then we got to change our educational protocol. Even if it's in the midst of our churches, then people have to thin out because our churches are filled with Tinker Town, Hollywood pretenders as well, particularly at the pulpit level. Particularly at the pulpit level. This is why for years now, at least a couple of hundred, no, 300 years in America, it was intended to captivate the church and divide it between left and right politics. And y'all know it in here. I've been telling you forever, get your soul up out of the political deviant system so you can see the truth. And when you can see the truth, you can walk in the freedom of the truth. It doesn't matter what side you want to be on. Am I making some sense? Because they lied to you on both sides 
and the pendulum of politics swings in order to keep you neutralized so that the truth can emerge. Four years, you get the fool. Then four more years, you get another fool. They're different fools, but they're both fools. And they're both fooling you because you bought into a false hope that they could deliver you. I'm here to tell you the truth right now. And this is where we are in our present. The battle that we're about to fight in the next few months is going to be a fierce smoke and mirror deception of levels that if you are not persuaded that you actually need God's wisdom, you're going to buy the lie. You're going to buy it. So just let me be your enemy. Let me be your enemy. Take shots at me. Let me be your enemy. Because I'm, I'm, I'm persuaded that what I see is a complete fraudulent system. A complete fraudulent system of the highest order. And the fraudulent system up front is protecting this diabolical manifestation behind the scenes. Welcome to Epstein Island. On both sides of the aisle. On both sides of the island, from America to Europe, okay? From America to Europe. And it would be in Africa if God in his mercy didn't keep us so low by colonialism. It would be there too. It would be there too. Now, China is so far gone. They're so far gone in their hyper-atheism. That they've been doing this, 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 you know, banging boys and banging girls. They in the robots at the infinite level now. And I've already talked to you about that. This is where transhumanism will emerge up out of this matrix of masterful deviance. This is where it's coming from. And here you are sitting and scratching your head wondering who's going to win the election. I guarantee you that's completely irrelevant. I guarantee you that's completely irrelevant. I guarantee you it's completely irrelevant. Pastor, what do we do? I'm not in application mode, but, but you, you and I have things we should be doing. I just want to say one more thing in terms of the text in Romans chapter uh, 8, uh, Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 28, uh, verse 28 through 32. Just listen to the reading. I need to close. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge... They did not want God to rule over them. They didn't want the light of biblical truth to tell them you've gone too far. This is the way to go. Walk ye in it. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. See, God dislodges the mind from the parameters of moral and ethical truth so that the mind doesn't have any capacity to restrain from transgressing against God and know it. Reprobation is the idea of failing the test to qualify for being a mind that thinks according to its maker's design. Reprobation is the idea of the mind going through a test and being disqualified for failing to operate according to the maker's manual. Reprobation of the mind is when you lose the capacity for reasonable, rational, coherent, moral, ethical breaks and parameters that would constitute the potential for making right choices and living a prosperous life. 
Reprobation is when you don't know the difference between excrement and real food. Reprobation is when you lose the capacity to find the right spaces, to find the right holes. All holes are the same hole for the reprobate. Did you hear what I just stated? And that's because the mind has lost its capacity to recognize deviancy and perversion and its consequences. This is what you and I are dealing with. And this was something that went through a proxies over hundreds of years to get to where we are. Remember, I told you it was being done by certain human beings in the dark. But up front, we were engaging in a heteronormative dominus appearance. Now it's breaking out. In just a few years, your president will be a queer married to some wild freak. And they will have children that are a hybrid of all kinds of technological finaglings. And we will stand there and say, oh, how wonderful. How wonderful that is. If, 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 if we don't end up not having elections at all, because, you know, Klaus Schwab says in a few years we won't even be doing elections. Makes sense to me. Makes sense to me. I'm tired of electing reprobates, aren't you? Let Jesus run this thing. So I'm landing the plane kind of softly with, with a bit of a humor, but it's much more, much more uh, nemesine and problematic than I want to actually admit at the present time. It's much more problematic. What I would say to you by way of application is that you and I should grasp the moral lesson. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in verses 29 through 34. Because of their rejection of the knowledge of God and him rejecting their minds, they are filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, Whispers are the cowards. Just keep going, Jess, keep going. Cowards. They'll whisper rather than talk to you in front of your face. Backbiters. Haters of God. Straight haters of God. Look like the whole House and Senate to me right there. It's all of those folks in Congress. With the, hand, with, the, with the exception of a handful of good men and women who are becoming despairing about what they see as well. Despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. You wonder what Paul is thinking there, right? But don't, don't even pay attention to Paul. Pay attention to the Holy Ghost because he gave this construction for us to make application all the way to the end of time. Evil inventions is what's going on right now with everybody being sucked into a new world order at the metaverse, at the information level, at the transformation of your mind, at the flooding of your thoughts to take you captive and destroy your capacity to walk in the dignity of the Imago Dei. This is the gradual destruction of your passion for truth. It's the gradual destruction of your tolerance for truth. It's the gradual destruction of your capacity to pursue truth. And this is why one of the ways you can measure this is by how easy it is for you to be distracted from the truth and how easy it is for you to be captivated by the lie, how easy it is for you to tolerate the lie, 
how easy it is for you to stop your allegiance with God and open yourself up for a lie. Am I making some sense? This here is a constant flood of data and information that is driving you into that middle ground, if not swinging to the far end of absolute reprobation. This is a information warfare. It's a warfare. Listen to it Um, over in verse 32. Let me finish up these two. Verse 31. Without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable and unmerciful. Think about that. When you are a sociopath, you don't have mercy. You can, you can kill 30, 40,000 people and don't even acknowledge that they exist as human beings. And, and, and if we were to just hold our government accountable over the years, they sit around like they go to church and they decree, decree drones to kill people who can't even defend themselves and somehow don't want you to challenge them. This is where the church is wicked. Because if the preacher doesn't stand up and prophetically let the government know that your obligation is to obey the word of God, your job is to reward good and punish evil, and you can't define good on your own grounds. You can't define evil on your own grounds. God has defined good and God has defined evil, and every government is raised up to reward the good and punish the evil. The whole White House is empty now. The whole White House is empty. And this is why your churches are Tinkertown Hollywood churches that are empty too, spiritually, because they have nothing to say. I, I guarantee you, it'd be a little, a little bit of fighting in the streets. It would be a little bit of fighting in the streets, no doubt about it, because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There would be a little bit of fighting in the street if all of our churches weren't captivated by the Illuminati and some other sorority group and some other kind of system controlling them and paying them off to keep their mouth shut and becoming a tool for political systems. And I'm talking about your American church and proud about it. Have no allegiance to King Jesus. No allegiance to King Jesus. The paradigm of King Jesus was clear. He told the truth and both politics and religion killed him. That's your paradigm. How do I know I'm part of an assembly that's telling the truth? Because the government and the religious systems hate him. Because he can't be bought out. Because he knows the true Zion. The heavenly Jerusalem the mother of freed men and women rooted in a covenant mercy accomplished by a savior who is the perfect Jew. And he becomes the one man by whom all mankind can be brought into fellowship with God. Every other system is a demonically controlled system at its fundamental levels, child of God. And what you're about to see in a few minutes is the valence pool wide open. And it's going to become very plain what you and I have been dealing with for decades upon decades. Not only do they 
take pleasure in these things themselves, Paul said, but they delight in others who take pleasure in these things. That's verse 32. Y'all got that? So I'm going to help you because I, I, I don't want nobody getting out of here. Y'all stuck in y'all seats right now. I see it. Few people snuck out. They had a lot of grace to sneak out. Check your heart. They take pleasure in people being enslaved and predatorily controlled and dominated and abused. They take pleasure in the destruction of the Imago Dei and the perversion of little boys and little girls and the dominating of men and women who have not come into the maturity of their identity so as to stand on the grounds of what God said you are and can be. They take pleasure in manipulating and controlling and dominating and destroying. That sounds like the devil to me. Amen. 